Emergency Medical Minute presents Laboring Under Pressure. Hello and welcome to another episode of Emergency Medical Minute Presents. My name is Jeffrey Olson and I'm a second year medical student at the University of Colorado. And for today's episode, I'm joined in studio again by Dr. Travis Barlock. And we're going to discuss a clip from our event, Laboring Under Pressure, Managing Obstetric Emergencies in a Global Setting, which was held in May of 2023. This event was hosted at the University of Denver and was organized with the help of Joe Parker and was a fundraiser for the organization Health Outreach Latin America. In this talk, we hear from Dr. Kirsten Williams. Dr. Kirsten Williams completed her OB-GYN residency at Bay State Medical Center and practices as an obstetric hospitalist at Press St. Luke's Medical Center in Denver, Colorado. And during her talk, Dr. Williams is going to walk us through the common causes and treatments of postpartum hemorrhage. So why do we worry about postpartum hemorrhage? It's one of the top five causes of maternal morbidity and mortality in the world, both in developed and third world countries, and quite often for different reasons. Hemorrhage leading to transfusion is one of the biggest causes of maternal morbidity in the U.S., and rates are increasing as the risk factors are increasing. On the bright side of things, deaths are going down. We're doing more hysterectomies. We've got better access to transfusions. We've got better access to IR and other treatments. And for the purpose of this talk, we're going to talk about primary hemorrhage, which is hemorrhage in the first 24 hours after delivery, and secondary hemorrhage, which is hemorrhage um, that is 24 hours to up to 12 weeks after delivery. In either one, there are some common issues. First of all, the definition of hemorrhage is recently in recent years been changed to be greater than a thousand mils of blood loss. A lot of these patients are really healthy coming in. So by the time they're unstable, you're pretty far behind and they probably have lost 25% of their blood volume. And you really need to figure out that cause so that you can get it fixed quickly. So common causes of primary postpartum hemorrhage, acne is a huge one. Another one is lacerations. You can have lacerations of the vulva. You can have lacerations of the vagina. You can have lacerations of the cervix. You can even potentially have a laceration of the uterus if there is a uterine rupture. So think about those. Retained placenta is a big one, and it's only becoming a worse issue as there are more uterine procedures that are done that make the risk of invasive placenta an issue. And also defects of coagulation, whether that's abruption, DIC, along with severe preeclampsia, if you don't have a lot of platelets, that can be an issue, inherited coagulopathies, causes that go along with secondary hemorrhage, subinvolution of the placental site. When you deliver that placenta, it's essentially a big scrape on the uterus for all intents and purposes. So about a week or two after delivery, that scab comes off and they bleed again. And sometimes that can be a pretty significant bleed, especially if the patient's got other issues going on, such as low platelets from HELP syndrome or bleeding coagulopathy. Retained products of conception is a pretty common one. Infection, which also can lead to retained products of conception. Infected uteruses don't like to clamp down very well, and they're very inflamed, and they can bleed heavier. We talked about inherited coagulopathies, acute coagulopathies, as we discussed, severe preeclampsia, HELP syndrome with low platelets can be an issue, and even abnormalities of the uterus. Is there an issue with the fibroid? AV malformation of the uterus is probably underdiagnosed. It's probably out there more often than we realize. We don't necessarily get studies that show it. And things that we do in pregnancy, DNCs, 
C-sections can actually increase the risk of having an AV malformation. So remember your four T's. Tone. Are you having issues with acne? Trauma. Is there a laceration somewhere? Is there a uterine rupture that needs to be addressed? Tissue. Is there some placenta still in there? Thrombin. Do they have some sort of coagulopathy type issue that's going on? So for workup in the ER, first of all, get your vitals, get your IV access. Two IVs is really key on these. Um, that way you can be giving blood in one, fluids, medications. A lot of times these people need quick help. Look at your labs, see where your blood count is, see how your coags are doing. Ultrasound to look for a retained placenta. Keep track of your blood loss. In the obstetric world over the last several years, there's been this discussion about quantitative blood loss versus estimated blood loss. All through my training, talked about toss out some jello. How much blood loss do you think that is? Look at pictures of blood loss. Quantitative blood loss, we are now weighing everything, which can be obnoxious sometimes, but most labor and deliveries will have a chart that has the dry weight of everything on the deck. Chucks, pads, sheets. And they'll just start weighing everything on a scale, add it up to track out their dry weight of what has been thrown in there. You've got a quantitative blood loss. It's not always the best, but it is better than EBL in studies. And then get ready for transfusion if you need to. Most places will have a mass transfusion protocol if needed at this point. The other thing to point out is pregnant women, look at that fibrinogen. Most of the time, we'd love to see that above 400. If you're below 200, you're going to have bleeding issues. Medications for acne. There are main ones that we use, and they all have some caveats to them. Oxytocin. It is the same stuff that you're producing when you're contracting and you're in labor. Most people tolerate it very well. Every once in a while, you'll have someone that does have issues with it, but it's pretty rare. Usually first line. It's easy. It's in a bag. Get it going through the IV. You do not want to do an IV push. Most places don't mix their own oxytocin anymore, which is a good thing. I have seen a couple of cases where the patient got an IV push of oxytocin and it can cause pretty significant hypotension. But go ahead and run your Pitocin in. Methogen, great drug, works quickly, but you do have to watch it around women who have blood pressure issues. So if you've got someone who has preeclampsia, probably not the best drug because it can raise the blood pressure to stroke level range. Hemabates is the next one. Great drug also, but two things you're going to watch out for. First of all, it can cause very impressive, profound, immediate diarrhea. So if you're giving it, make sure you've got some Lamotil or something to follow with it because otherwise it can be extremely messy. Also watch it with asthmatics. And then mesoprostol, Cytotec, is a great drug for hemorrhage. You can give it multiple ways, which is really nice. You can do it orally. You can do it buccally. I've had times where I've had, okay, you know, you're like flat on your back. You really can't swallow. And just suck on this. Put it in your cheek. Go for it. Rectal, actually turns out it doesn't pick up as quickly. Like your drug concentrations don't reach a good concentration as quickly rectally. Some things that can help with that, don't use gel if you're using it rectally. I usually use a little bit of blood just to get it in there, but it does work. A couple of things to know is in higher doses, you can get really bad shakes. You can get a fever or sometimes you can get some GI side effects. Transaminic acid, I think OB was a little late to adapt this. Ortho's been great. Trauma's been great. It's just really been in the last few years that TXA is being used on the deck. There are some beautiful studies in third world countries that show that this really can make a difference. Most of the time, our studies have been on the IV form, but for those in places where IV might not be available, PO is definitely an option. 
dose on this is a gram. Typically, we run it over 10 minutes if we're doing it IV. Really, the studies have shown that it's best if used within three hours of delivery. There have been no studies on TXA and secondary hemorrhage. But if you look it up to date, and I think it's totally acceptable also just personally if you're in trouble, is that it can be administrated in the field and you might as well do it to see if it helps with the secondary hemorrhage. Get that uterus compressed. Bare bones, basic, one hand in the vagina, one hand at the top of the uterus and rub like mad. It sounds weird. Don't know why it works, but it makes that uterus cramp down and contract and it cuts off those blood vessels if acne is one of your issues. If your fundus is more termish, so if you can feel it around the belly button, there's something called a Bakri balloon. And it is a contraption. It's like a big balloon that you fill with sterile water to put compression over that placental site. I'm not a big fan of the Bakri's. I tend to be aggressive with my meds to make my uterus cramp down. And so when that uterus squeezes, my Bakri's tend to go straight out of the uterus. There is a newer system that is getting into a lot of the hospitals in the area called the Jada system. It almost looks like a silicon horseshoe. And it's basically the concept of it. It's almost like a soaker hose. And so it is placed into the uterus and it goes under suction. And so it sucks the uterine wall in. There's an amazing story that came out in the news a few months ago about how it was developed. It was a college student who just in one of her classes, they're like, oh, figure something out for this. And she picked postpartum hemorrhage and came up with this idea. And you basically apply suction to the uterine cavity, draw it in. And in that respect, you put compression on those vessels in the uterus. And it's really amazing. And because it's a slimmer system, it stays in there, whereas the Bakri can get pushed out. And so it's great. If you're looking at someone who's hemorrhaging with a small uterus, maybe she had a DNE, maybe she had an early delivery, Foley catheter. If you happen to have a 60 cc, great. Most places are only going to have 30 cc's. I haven't encountered a 60 cc fully in a while, but stick a fully into the uterus, blow that up with saline, and that will give you compression on a smaller uterus. Other treatments, and these typically are not going to be done in the ER. These are going to be past the ER. But in an operating room, compressive sutures, whether that's a B-Lynch suture where it's almost like suspenders with suture around the uterus to help block the areas of blood flow into the uterus, artery ligations, it really takes an act of God to get down to those arteries. And so I usually let the gynocs do that. And we are lucky at PSL, a lot of our big cases, we have a gynoc involved in our invasive placenta cases. So they're really good about quickly getting down to those arteries without injuring anything and ligating them hysterectomy. And then if you've got IR capabilities, that's a great way to go. All right. So I guess just initial thoughts uh, listening to that clip there. What did you think? Yeah, I mean, I thought that it was great. I mean, there's a lot of information that she shared. And so kind of unpacking it all, I guess I kind of grouped it into the initial differential for uh, postpartum hemorrhage and then the, the different treatment modalities thereafter. And I thought she did a really good job of of being very comprehensive in, in in her lecture. I remember feeling that when I was uh, watching her talk and then just, yeah, again, uh, listening to it. It's just, there's, there's a lot there. I thought that her breakdown of, you know, the, the four T's, I'm a, always a fan of mnemonics. And so that's always good to kind of get another one of those. So what was it? It was um, tone, trauma, tissue, and thrombin. So thinking of like acne, and then just basic lacerations or rupture, 
and then retain products of conception, and then lastly, just different types of coagulopathies that can result. I thought that was really good. And then all the different treatment modalities that are available. One, just what you can do at the bedside with you know massage and direct pressure, and then what you can do with certain medications, and then the more advanced either devices or procedures that can be done depending on what's going on. So yeah, that was, uh, I thought, a, a really good talk. Yeah. Putting this clip together came at a really convenient time with where I'm at in school because as I was uh, pulling this clip together, I was studying for the OB-GYN shelf. And if, if anybody else is out there is studying for that shelf exam, I think this talk was uh, very applicable. All those medications mentioned, the, the differential, very useful. But then also this last week, I've been on my L&D immersion as part of like my clerkship year. And everything that Dr. Williams talked about, I'm seeing on like a day-to-day -day basis there. Some examples of that is with all of our new patients, we're asking them if they have asthma. And that might seem like a really random question, but when you know the connection with hemabate, it makes sense that you, you would want to know before you're in a postpartum hemorrhage situation if you can give hemabate or if they're going to have a bad reaction because uh, of the history with asthma. And, you know, I was actually pimped on the, uh, the four T's of postpartum hemorrhage while in a C-section in the OR on, on the L&D floor. And I was very glad I had been thinking about this talk because I got the first question right. They just asked me straight up, what is the most common cause of postpartum hemorrhage? I thought about my four T's. I came up with atony right away. Nailed it. Yeah. But then the surgeon I was working with kept going and she said, well, what causes atony? And I, I wish I had been paying a little bit closer attention. I said something about how the uterus is just really worn out from laboring, mm -hmm. uh, which is kind of silly, but also uh, prolonged labor is a risk factor for atony. But but then I, I I wasn't quite sure what she was getting at. And I, I was thinking like you know, previous C-sections, well, that's not really a risk for atony. I was trying to go through my four T's, but what I had totally missed, and I, I heard it just now in the talk with Dr. Williams, was that infection can put you at a risk for atony. And uh, this patient had had chorioamnionitis, and that's why they were at an, an increased risk uh, for atony. It's cool to see that like this stuff is, it's not just academic, like, it's very real world stuff. Yeah. And then I actually did see postpartum hemorrhage this last week. I don't know if, what they called it, Swedish, but uh, where I was working, they came over the overhead announcements and called it a code white. I actually didn't even know that that's what a code white was. But I went to the room number and it was a patient that we were worried was having very significant postpartum hemorrhage. It been several hours after her delivery and was still bleeding quite a bit. So they called the activation. And what I saw was the resident reach into this patient's uterus and pull out a massive amount of clotted blood. It was really shocking. But yeah, I think, again, going through our four T's, uh, this was tissue. And we often think retained placenta is the main tissue, but just blood clots themselves is enough. And especially once I saw that volume, I, I really understood that if that was in the uterus, it would not be able to, to clamp down. It also made Dr. Williams' metaphor of throw some jello out make a lot more sense because this clotted blood really just looks like dark red jello. And, you know, it's kind of a little bit different to try to estimate that blood loss, which is, you know, why we took it over and weighed it. And, and this patient actually did meet criteria for uh, an activation. They were over a thousand milliliters yeah. of blood loss at that point. Isn't that crazy? I mean, yeah, that's like 20% of like blood volume. Yeah. Yeah. And kudos to this resident because 
without removing all that those, that clotted blood that would be absent from the calculation, the uterus wouldn't be able to clamp down. But fortunately, this patient had a good outcome. But the other thing I saw with this activation was something else that Dr. Williams talked about, and that was the JADA device. We actually got that out. Yeah, I've, n- I've never seen that. Cause, you know, in, in my training, there was always reference to the, the Bakri balloon. I've never had to use one, and I honestly have actually never even seen it be used when I was on my OB rotations. But yeah, it was interesting that she described this like silicone horseshoe-shaped thing. Is that what it looked like? Yeah, yeah, kind of a very small little horseshoe shape with some perforations at the end that allow it to do kind of like a vacuum suction seal inside the uterus. Very easy for the resident to insert, flushed it with some saline. I was able to hand off the sterile saline. That was my job. They hooked it up to some suction, and I think we we were able to take it out just a few hours later. And the, the patient never actually required a blood transfusion, although we were ready for that ended up having a good outcome. And you know, I think the Jada, not a sponsor, by the way, was part of the most effective treatment for that patient. That's awesome. Yeah, I uh, have not seen that used myself, but you know, I, I, maybe we've got to look into it more. Yeah. All right. So uh, I've got a few questions prepared for you about this talk. First is uh, that one interesting cause of postpartum hemorrhage brought up by Dr. Williams was an AV malformation. What is an AV malformation and why is that a risk for bleeding? Sure. Yeah. So an AV malformation is an arteriovenous malformation and it's just an abnormal growth of blood vessels. So tiny blood vessels can have abnormal growth patterns, I guess you'd say, and can form these little clusters, these tangles almost of vasculature and their architecture is different. And so they just are much more likely to bleed. I think I'll just make a little plug in here. I remember when I was actually on my IR rotation back in medical school, the uh, radiologist said to me that it's more accurate to refer to these lesions as vascular malformations, as VMFs, rather than AVMs, because I guess the the term arterial venous malformation is implying that it is both arterial and venous. And I'm sure you know from histology, the, the architecture of arteries and veins are different. And so if you're saying that it's in AVM, you are saying that there's both arterial and venous structures within the lesion, while in reality, they often can just be entirely venous, they can be entirely arterial, they can be these mixed capillary structures, etc. And so anyway, that's a maybe more technical than we even need to get to, but he technically said, oh, they're, it's more accurate to refer to them as vascular malformations. But anyway, they can, they can form wherever. They can form in the uterus and cause bleeding, they can form in the GI tract, in the brain, in the lungs, wherever, and yeah, they're just, wherever they are, just you should know that they're, uh, they are a bleeding risk. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one thing Dr. Williams brought up was that we're seeing more of them because we're doing more procedures. So I guess it, it makes sense to me that if you're disrupting the capillary network, different vessels, as they're trying to grow back, they're creating these large structures that are just vulnerable to bleeding. Another question for you, different part of Dr. Williams' talk, We heard that we don't want to use oxytocin as an IV push dose uh, because of the risk of hypotension. I think maybe for some of our listeners, myself included, I've heard it a lot. I've heard of these push doses, but I'm not, I I don't know if I would know it if I saw a a push dose. So just what, what does it mean to do a push dose? Yeah, sure. So it's basically 
where you take a syringe full of medication and you administer it directly into the IV fairly quickly, I mean, over a couple seconds or so, maybe over a minute, depending on what you're doing. But that's basically what it is. In emergency medicine, push doses of medications are essentially referring to vasopressors. The classic one that comes to mind is push-dose epinephrine. Um, and you're usually doing that while you're assembling drip, while you're assembling an infusion. And so the concept is that you're trying to almost like mimic what the medication rate would be on a drip by just doing a bedside push-dose of it. It's a bolus dose or a push-dose. It started off in the anesthesia field, honestly, doing um, pressors in the operating room, mainly with ephedrine and phenylephrine. And anyway, that's kind of spilled over into the emergency medicine field and, and also obviously others. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'll bring up another just kind of quick experience I had several times on my L&D immersion and that was with oxytocin. And one thing I learned about it was just how quick it can be turned on and off. So a few times attempting to deliver a placenta after a vaginal birth and we were just meeting resistance, the cord wasn't advancing, the doctor would call out for a pit break. The brand name for oxytocin is Pitocin and they would just turn off the uh, oxytocin for just a couple of minutes. And apparently it's very quick on, quick off drug. In about 30 seconds, it's all out of your system. And that uterus would stop clamping down long enough for us to effectively deliver that placenta. And they could just be turned right back on to get that tone right back up on the uterus, get it clamping down. Okay, so another one for you. Can you explain more about how transexamic acid works and other scenarios you might consider it? Yeah, sure. So transexamic acid is also known as TXA. And it works by inhibiting fibrinolysis. So if some of the listeners don't know what that is, basically your body is in a constant state of equilibrium with respect to... Um, technically, you could say to all of its organ systems, but with respect to bleeding, when talking about it, we're referring to it as, as hemostasis. And you're in a state of equilibrium between clotting and, well, I guess, clot formation and clot breakdown. And the term for clot breakdown is fibrinolysis because it's formed by what's called a fibrin plug. And so the enzyme which is responsible for breaking that down is plasmin. It's first plasminogen, this inactive form, and then it turns into plasmin and that breaks it down. And TXA works by binding to and inhibiting plasminogen. So basically by inhibiting that you will prevent clot breakdown and so in turn you will get more clot formation. So in bleeding that's exactly what you want. So you can administer this medicine, TXA, very simply like one gram. It's been studied in a, in a couple of things but in, in the emergency medicine world it's mainly used as far as like the IV route for trauma, so in, in a traumatic hemorrhage, and then also in the obstetric world as well, so postpartum hemorrhage or abnormal uterine bleeding and things like that. And so we also use it kind of uh, topically for different things, so for nosebleeds or lacerations that are difficult to control, just kind of just topically applying it. But like I said, for IV, those are the two scenarios in which I, I largely see it done. Good to know. So let's step out of the ER for a second and into the IR suite. What would interventional radiology be able to perform to aid in the treatment of postpartum hemorrhage? Yeah, so going down this this chain of different options, you know, if you've tried your, uh, so it depends on what the, the cause is, right? She alludes to, you know, coagulopathies and other, you know, cause we already went through the four T's. But some level, one of the things you can do to get the uterus to stop bleeding is to embolize the arteries that are going to it. And so 
they can do what's called a uterine artery embolization, a UAE. And by blocking off the blood flow to it, you'll stop it from bleeding. It's, I think, a last-ditch effort before the final step in, in control, which would be a hysterectomy. So if you can potentially save them from that operation, it, it, I think going with a minimally invasive route, if it's viable, then that would be the way to go. All right. Yeah. And would you say you're using your IR colleagues uh, more and more? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, IR is just it is a, definitely it's a growing field. The constant push is toward minimally invasive and we're finding more and more applications every day for what IR can do. And obviously, you know, bleeding control is, you know, just one of those. All right. Good to know. Okay. So we'll wrap it up there. Uh, Dr. Barlock, thank you again for meeting me here in studio. Yeah, for sure. Thanks so much, Jeff. Honestly, this is always fun and can't wait to do the next one. Great, and we'll have some more episodes coming up soon. But with that, we'll wrap it up. Hello, this is Jeffrey at the end of the show. I just wanted to make a quick correction of something I noticed while editing the show together, and that was my description of the Jada device. I actually saw the Jada device again and realized that we were not flushing the Jada device with the sterile solution. In fact, that was being used to inflate a balloon that held it in place beneath the cervix, like a Foley balloon. Okay, I just wanted to make that quick correction. That's all for me.